0: This episode is brought to you by Noble Pet Foods. No nonsense, no bull. Go to noblefoods.com, use promo code DOGTALK15, and they'll deliver dog food to your house with Noble. Ever wonder what the dog in your life is thinking? Well, join me, Liz Murdoch, animal communicator, talking with the dogs and finding out What dogs want people in their lives to know and understand? I've spent my life talking and listening to animals. So, if you consider yourself a dog person or just happen to have a dog, I'm here to help you learn how to talk or listen to the dogs in your life. I chat with people too, sharing stories and tips on exactly how animal communication or being a dog whisperer makes an impact at home or when working with the dogs. So welcome to Talking With the Dog's podcast, a place where we uncover exactly what dogs want us to know and celebrate that every dog has a story. Welcome to Talking with the Dogs. Today we have Shannon Riley. She is a positive reinforcement dog trainer, and she has done quite a few things in her life. So she's very well versed in speaking about dog training, whether she's worked at the uh, animal safari in zoos what have you. She has written a book, The Evolution of Dog Training, so we can learn a bit about the past and where we are now to meet the, do- the needs of our dogs today. Shannon, welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here today. Thank you. Thank you for making time. I know that there's a lot going on in the world where our dogs need training and you really are not just a dog trainer, you're a people trainer.
1: Yes. That is so funny. That's been the new thing of the last few months. People say, you're not a dog trainer. You're a human trainer. Because yes. it's really the humans changing their behavior to adapt to what their dog needs to learn or their animal. You know, if we keep trying to do the same thing, we're just going to, it's insanity, you know, repeating the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So, and you can't change an animal unless you change yourself somehow, whether it's how you train, whether it's your perspective, Um, You know, it's it's us changing so we can help our animals.
0: Okay, so this is great. So I work, as you know, as an animal communicator where people will come and they'll want to find out why is their dog acting a certain way. And so I'll tune in and I might say, oh, my gosh, the leash, the way you're using the leash, you know, you can shorten it and do certain things or you can you know, you're not consistent. Your dog is confused by the word choices that you're using. So how do you help somebody? We're just going to get right to it. When somebody, yeah. comes, when somebody comes to you and they've got this dog and they're embarrassed maybe that they haven't done dog training before, how do you help them just jump in when it's not like, oh, we just got our dog. We're doing dog training. They've been together for a while and it's like, oh, we don't know what to do and they don't want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. How, how do you help them?
1: Well, I'm a big, um, big into, I'm not going to judge where they came from, what they did, because I've been a dog. I have been a crossover trainer. So I, somebody can come in and even though I haven't used a pinch collar or a choke chain or shot collar, I've never used a shot collar, but all those things Mm -hmm. in 25 years, they can come up to me and I'm not a trainer who's going to like criticize them right away. I'm going to be very open and say, and I'll start asking questions. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? So maybe if a dog who's never been trained, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. And I'm like, well, you know, what was your plan? And maybe they'd start to tell me, you know, we got the puppy and then I got really sick or we had to move or my mother got sick or whatever. Or maybe we didn't know you were even supposed to train a dog or, we, you know, whatever their reason. I always start where we're, I meet my client where they're at. So I find out where they start because mm-hmm. that helps me know. Do they need baby steps? Do they need big steps? Do I need to change their perspective? Maybe they trained dogs when they were a little kid and it was all punishment. So they're used to being this alpha dominance thing. And I then kindly say, well, you know, dog training has changed a lot. And that's why I wrote my book was so people could go like change. And I start little and I meet people where they are. So I have some clients who literally I can say this week you're going to work on sit and stay, or, you know, some very small. And then I have some clients who want 20 things to work on for the Mm -hmm. week. If I'm working privately in classes, it's obviously a little different, but another thing I'm big at is if somebody comes and they go, Oh, I didn't practice. I'm like, okay. And I work on, well, why? Well, -hmm. maybe they thought they had to work for 30 minutes every day. And that was overwhelming. So I'm like, okay, let's do five minutes every day. That's okay. And then they succeed in that and then they have fun. And then they are like, well, we did five minutes twice a day, you know, because it was more fun. And I just find where they are. Um, Maybe I have a a client who has hip, bad hips. So never on her training plan is you're going to go walk a mile. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. So we found other ways to exercise our dog. So I really, especially when I'm working privately, customize it to exactly what the client's needs, wants, and abilities are to the dog's needs, wants, and abilities.
0: Okay. So that's really important because in, in my sessions are all private sessions where people work with me and we find out what the dog is saying and what's going on. And from what you're saying, you too can say in a private session, oh, you're the type of dog, your relationship with your dog is such that you can practice two or three things, as you said, like maybe 20. But there are some people that they can only do sit. They're only ready for sit in that particular time. And that's something that I think people need to be reassured about that that's okay, right? For the success of our animals in these steps
1: are still steps, you know, and as long as you're moving forward, Then even if it's tiny little, you know, baby steps, you're still moving forward. And sometimes those people have more success than the people who try to jump in and do too many things. And so they're like the jack of all trades and the master of none. Right. Um, You know, so sometimes that's all you can work on.
0: Okay, so a big part of positive reinforcement and your work is the empathy aspect Mm -hmm. and understanding. And and so I don't think you're one of those people that, oh, it's just a dog, right? No, yeah, exactly. Okay, (laughs) so when people have these preconceived ideas, and it can be both about their dogs, whether it's, you know, like I had two labs, one passed away, but they were very different dogs. And so when we're meeting our animals, that they're very different, it's, That's one thing to take into consideration, no matter which dog it is, they're different. And the way we may have grown up and witnessed how dogs were treated doesn't mean we have to do it that way. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Okay. Because things change the way, I mean, the very first dog I trained as a teenager, I was required to have her on a choke chain. Like it wasn't even an option were required. And then she was a young puppy lab and she kind of got wild. And the trainer said, you need to move up to a pinch collar. As a teenager, my stomach twisted with that. Mm-hmm. And so I borrowed one of my friends that was in the class. I said, okay, well, let me see how she does. And I put it on. She yelped once. I said, never again. And I gave it back and I never <laughs> was like, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. Um, so yeah, there's so
0: many dog training has
1: changed so much over everything in they life
0: found things. They've just disp- yeah. discoveries have been made, science, research, etc. Exactly. So The pinch collars and and the choke chains and all that. And I've heard the dogs coughing before and I felt them as a medical intuitive. I felt like, oh, my gosh, what happened to the dog's neck? And I don't want to lose anyone who's interested, who is a firm believer in the Mm -hmm. pinch collars right now. But I do want to say that what is proven pretty much and, and many of the dog trainers that I have talked to. Who work with them, the pinch collars regularly, will say, "Yeah, they can work, but the majority of people using them are using them incorrectly." And Mm -hmm. so, do you want to comment on that about how they're not being used correctly and why that's a thing?
1: Well, um, part of it is people, and we know by science that you know this. And actually, as I'm a vet tech too, and so Mm -hmm. what we do know with science now is. There's lots of trauma because this is the most, the neck is the most vulnerable place of our body right? And because there's that spine, there's nerves, there's um, jugular, um, the trachea, the esophagus. It's like really vulnerable, which is Mm -hmm. why you go for the jugular when you're going to hurt someone. So um, there's really like in medically, there's really no right way to use it because you can always be causing injury because Mm -hmm. it tightens around the neck. However, when, if you're looking at the way traditional planners will talk about it, what they mean by that is, you know, the dog who's on a choke chain, that's going, like, oh, and they're just pulling the whole time and there's no pop.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: correct way to use a choke chain, if they're, you know, even though I still don't use them is um, you would pop when the dog does something wrong, like, you know, and then you release it instantly. So the idea it's called positive punishment in the fancy terms, and you're adding something to decrease a behavior. And so you add a pop to stop the jumping, to stop the pulling or whatever, but then they get the release of it. And that's supposed to be the positive part of it. You know, okay, oh, now. You stop pinching me? You stop pinching me because I stopped doing this. The problem with all punishment is no matter if it's how invasive an reverse mm-hmm. it is, um, you have to be very careful because punishment has to happen exactly on the moment of the behavior you don't want to happen. So the problem is, is humans are, have a delay. So, you know, your dog jumps or something and then you're like, oh, wait, they jumped and then you pop them Well, you pop them while their feet are all four on the ground. And it can be very confusing because they get punished when they're actually doing the right thing. And they didn't get punished when they did the wrong thing, um, because timing has to be very, very timed, you know. So if, for example, I'm going to use a human example because I'm big at that. So, like, if I touch a hot stove as I touch it, it's going to hurt. Right. It's a punishment because it decreases me wanting to touch it again and it added pain. So it's aversive. I mean, I did it to right. myself. It's a natural consequence, but I will learn when I touch that thing, it is hot. So it's immediate, it's effective, it's my own natural consequence. And I'm going to learn from that. With humans, you know, we're popping all the time or doing stuff. And so dogs or animals don't understand it at all because it's not consistent you know and it's and it's ill timed and and that's not a fault to the human it's just because we're humans and we're not robots and and our brain has to process i don't like what our dog did now my brain has to process what's my response and that takes a couple you know seconds to respond to you know it's not instant like right. me touching a stove
0: so that's like people who then say, because I've I've witnessed this too many times where people have the, the shock when, whatever they have, like a remote and they yes. press it, but the dog is sort of frantic and it didn't really completely work. So they press it again, or they're like, why well, I, I need to up it now. So it can get into an, an a heated moment for the person and the dog. And so really what we want to do is shift into alternatives. And that's Mm -hmm. why people even go to animal communicators. It's like, okay, I'm in a crisis situation. I can't figure something out or I need to figure out the why my animal's behaving this way. And the next step is like, I, I can say, well, you know, like, when I get an image of a leash and this dog like pulling in all different directions, I'm like, Oh my gosh, it seems like, you know, you're I'm getting from your dog that I I want help learning how to walk on a leash. And that's Mm -hmm. when then people like, why don't you go see if a a trainer can help fine tune how you walk your dog. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. From what you're saying to just, Hey, my dog is doing whatever. Or if I talk to an animal communicator, I want to fix this, and and someone like you can just say, okay, let's witness, let's figure this out where we are.
1: And one thing I want to say when you talk about pulling on leash, that's a big mm-hmm. thing that I end up because yeah. I get a lot of emotions for dogs too. Like I'm watching mm-hmm. their body language. Um, a lot of times, if a dog is struggling with loose leash walking, not you know pulling on leash, I start looking at something deeper because if this is a smart dog and they learn all these other things, I'm like, what's going on with this walk? Right. Not every time, but a lot of times it's actually because the dog's anxious, fearful, or stressed. And they go into, you know, we go into fight, flight, or freeze when we're anxious, fearful, or stressed. It's just how our amygdala works. Like we don't mm-hmm. have a choice. We respond. So some of these dogs go on a walk and maybe they're excited to put their leash on, but then they go outside and the outside world is kind of scary. Yeah. And so now they're pulling because they're like, I'm in flight. I'm in flight. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm just running. And you can't get their brain to to learn when they're at that level of stress, it isn't possible. If, if you're in a stressful situation, you can't learn algebra, you know, I mean, well, same with people exactly, too. exactly.
0: So they can't figure
1: out how to manage that leash. Exactly. So sometimes we have to look at that emotional part and deal with the stress, anxiety, or fear that's happening first. And then, um, we can, um, go from there and, um, then create a plan that is helpful for the person and the and the dog. You know because now we're looking yeah. at the emotional side of it.
0: Yes. And sometimes beyond the emotional, like I was just with a client who had a new dog in her life and the dog was adorable and and very smart. She was doing great with the eye contact and coming back to me in a public place, coming back to her in a public place. And yet I noticed something. She goes, yeah, but when we start walking and I go, well, do you ever just shorten the leash so your dog can't go? And she's like, oh, she didn't know about that. So I think it's interesting. I'd like you to comment on you know, the sometimes there's emotional issues, but sometimes it's just like directions on how to make a scrambled egg,
1: right? Totally, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just don't know how to do it, so um, that you need just skills. Like I just was at a client who had gone to other trainers and stuff, and then and we're working on emotional stuff. We're working on all the other stuff. So we finally, mm-hmm. after it's been a couple of weeks, and I'm like. She's like, my walk is getting is hard. And we have been dealing with emotional stuff. So I'm like, we're not worrying about that. So today we did it. And I'm like, okay, we're in her backyard Mm -hmm. and she doesn't even have the skills to even know how to teach this dog appropriately how to do this skill. Mm -hmm. But I was made the mistake, but I fixed it very quickly that I assumed because, well, she's already been to a good manners class and she's had Mm -hmm. these other trainers. So We were dealing with the emotional part. And I, so I kind of kept that on the side with the other trainers didn't understand. And so today I was like, okay, we've got a good emotional start. Let's see where this goes. And I'm like, oh, your skills are, your human skills are lacking. So um, we worked on a lot of obedience that I, in the back of my head had already assumed she knew, Mm -hmm. but Once I started having her in action, I'm like, no wonder your dog is confused. You know, like you're not clear. You don't even know what you're doing. So like, I can't teach you how to crochet if I don't know how to crochet. So I have to learn how to crochet so that I can teach you how to crochet. And so I had to walk through it and she's like, okay, you know, getting it a little bit better. So, um, but, uh, and I always just look at what people's goals are. They'll tell me they're at trainers. And like, I have one client right now who's like, all I want you to help me with right now is separation anxiety because I'm going to one of your colleagues' good manners classes. So I'm like, okay, this is what we're focusing on. And even if I go, now, if I see something that's a big problem with that dog specifically, like, gosh, there's 8,000 techniques. I know he or she is teaching this technique, but let me give you a suggestion. This is another technique that might not be able to be taught in a class because it's a class. So you don't... You know, do those things. So sometimes I'll do that. But um, yeah, it's 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 human skill. It's emotion. I mean, I sometimes tell my clients I'm like a family therapist because I'm like, what are everybody's needs? Who knows how to do what? And then because I have a husband and a wife who have different philosophies mm-hmm. and different kids. And so it can be a group um, project for sure.
0: Well, yeah, that's important. And I think like I find, cause since I'm not the vet and I'm not the trainer and I'm not the groomer, it's like, well, let's just find out what the dog says. Yeah. And people feel guilty. Like they'll, I'll get a feeling about a medicine and I can't diagnose or prescribe, but I can say, you know, it feels like, very, I feel very woozy. Like I'm on too much medicine. Mm-hmm. Have you ever talked to your vet about adjusting the meds, whatever they are? I feel sort of woozy. Do you ever notice that your dog is extra lethargic? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so they go, they, they talk to the vet, the vet adjusts it, and the dog is fine. Or they say, you know, I've been thinking about that I want to get a second opinion, but I'm afraid. And I'm like, go get a second opinion. We go to an eye doctor for our eyes and we go to a foot doctor for our feet kind of thing. And I find that training these dogs that I'm communicating with, some people have been to training, but now their whole life situation has changed. They've moved or their trainers moved away. And I'm like, you can go find a new trainer. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I never thought of that. So- (laughs) When you talk, because you're very based on meeting the the people where they are Mm -hmm. and that's, that's fine. An eye doctor can do that, you know, but how do you help people figure out what it is that they're even going to focus on? Because I think that most people think that dog training is about you know, learning sit and stay and and how to behave in the traditional sense. My dog needs to behave better. And then you come along and say, well, let's meet you where you are and see what's going on. How Mm -hmm. does somebody who's sitting at home and they find out that their schedule doesn't work with whatever you're offering today and they're trying to figure out how do I, what do I need to do? Or can I wait a week to work with you or your webinar? How does somebody know, what to, how to get started. Okay. I'm going to admit we need help in our family. Mm-hmm. How do I get started? How do you answer that?
1: Well, there's a lot of options because, and that's one of the reasons I have my website and have my in-person because my in-person obviously, you know, they call me, I got a puppy. What do I do? First thing I say is go to puppy class. Your puppy needs socialization more than anything. So let's get them socialized. Like that will be my direction. If it's a dog who says, they call me and they're like, I need help. And my dog is just a, a you know, good dog, no behavior problems. I just don't know how to train him. I'll send them either privately or good manners in person. Or if they say, gosh, my schedule, you know, I work, you know, all nights and then days and whatever, then that's where I have my website, where I have a good manners course online so that right. they can go and they can go at their own rate. And I have it broken down. So it's like sit. Do sit as long as you want to do sit. So if you want to just work on sit for a month and take, you know, a year to do this class, it doesn't matter because it's, you know, fits into your schedule.
0: And then find success with online dog training. If the people
1: are good at online stuff. So COVID taught us a lot. I personally do not like online webinars. I mean, I have to do them because it's part of how I got CEUs but like my children, all three were on online schooling. Um, one did okay. One did, one did pretty good. One did okay. One did terrible. Like she, but she has processing disorders and things. So she would just, it was the worst situation she could possibly be in. Yeah. Um, but a lot of younger, like I'm kind of an older generation of these things. So I'm not as techy. like there was no such thing as email growing up, you know, and there were no webinars, but some of these younger, 18, 19, 20 year olds, even into their 30s,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, they really resonate with this because they grew up with learning things online. They grew up with YouTube. They grew up mm-hmm. with, they're, they're watching TikTok. They're used to doing these things. So they learn how to cook off of, you know, um, different kinds of online classes. So, but older generations, like, you know, and, and like older, it depends if they're techie brains or not. If they're really introverted, sometimes it's better because they don't want to go to the classes. Um, but if they're very extroverted, it's not as ex- um, easy for them to access. So that's why it's there. I do do consulting where I can teach people to do things over the line, you know, if they want are on the phone. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'll have somebody who calls me and says, my dog can't go to a class because he bark, growls and lunges at every person that they see. That's where if they're local, I'll say we can work on them one-on-one. But I also have a reactive dog program on my website that is exactly what I would do if you and I were sitting together. Um, Okay, let's talk about fight, flight, and freeze. Um, Let's talk about body language. Let's talk about this. And you go through each segment. So, like, if you already know a lot about body language, you'll go through that segment and be like, check, done. But then maybe I'll say, okay, let's look at the triggers, make a list. And they're like, oh my gosh, my dog has way more triggers than I thought. That might take longer than they thought. And so I have the reactive dog program broken up into little segments. So they can go at their pace of what their knowledge is and then what their dog can do. And then that's where then they could do online good manners. If they really want to teach them, sit down, come and stay, but they can't go to a class. They can do it. They have another option now where before online things, Mm-hmm. It was either you either see person and in, in, or you read a book and that's it. Like those were your only options. Or maybe you get a video like a VHS, you know? Right.
0: Right. <laughs> so you have um, a bit of your own intuitive way in assessing things. It's not just like meeting that. How does intuition in your experience, you you haven't taken animal communication classes. Yourself.
1: No, I've like read some books and I've done like a workshop here or there, but I've never been like done the First. whole Process. Yeah.
0: So how do you use it in your, in your work when you get those knowings and how often do you get a knowing?
1: It's interesting because I have been doing knowing like what you call knowings for a very Mm -hmm. long time, but it took a client years ago over Mm -hmm. like, gosh, my kids were really small. So, you know, 15 years ago that goes, you do know that you have intuition, right? Like, you get stuff more than like anybody else. And I was all, and then I started researching and I started learning about intuition because I didn't know anything about so it. It was psychics. a client that pointed it out to a you. A client but. pointed it out. And then I started doing, looking at human psychic stuff. And, and I started doing some more deep dive into the Eastern type of medicine. And I was
0: mm-hmm. like,
1: wow. And then I, you know, um, so mine is very much empathic. So mm-hmm. I feel it. Um, I don't necessarily hear them talking to me. I don't hear them saying things, um, but I can feel it. So if they're anxious, I will feel it. I'm very empathic with humans too. I actually have to protect myself if there's mm-hmm. too much energy, um, but I will feel their anxiety. I will feel their happiness. I will feel their sadness. I will feel pain sometimes. Um,
0: okay, so I'm going to cut you off because I so. Yes. I want you because I want you to expand on that. So because when I teach people about animal communication or even students, they'll say, well, you know, the dog is stressed, like you're saying. But if I if there are some people, if I say, oh, I think your dog is stressed, they'll say, oh, no, he's not. He's just doing this because of that. Da, da, da. And to to make it helpful, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm right as an animal commu- or I'm right. You know, that doesn't do the dog really any good in the mm-hmm. person. And so it's like I. I describe. I say, well, your dog is feeling stressed. I'll say in this situation, I'll ask the dog and I'll give examples. How do you do that? Well, because, because they're not coming to me, they're
1: the same. Yeah. And, but they're not coming to me as a communicator. They're coming to me right. as a trainer. And so it's yes. a, they're coming to me with a different mindset. So I don't always disclose to some clients because I don't say, oh, I feel the anxiety of your dog. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll say, oh my God, your dog's so anxious. They're making me anxious. That's if it's a person who I don't think is going to Buy into what I'm feeling. Uh, maybe that's as deep as I go. Okay. But what I do is because I have n- mental, I have education, deep education in body language and right. emotional and the medical, like the cortisol levels and things. What I start to do as I talk to the client and I observe the dog while I'm talking to the client. And then I'll say, well, did you see how your dog just yawned a lot? And, you know, that, oh, you know, they're sniffing here. Look at their ears, look Mm -hmm. at their tail. And I start making them aware of how their body is expressing their body language. And I really go deep into body language um, with these dogs. And then I also usually ignore dogs for the first, depending how long until they come to me. I don't approach dogs. They come to me. So sometimes I have dogs like last night, I had a dog who she's like, she's coming up and asking you for treats. Like she never does that with people, but it's because I gave her the space to explore and be, you know, but she was still nervous. She stretched to get me. And I said, I tell them if I changed my body posture, I stood up really fast. I would lose this connection. So I Mm kind of talk about it like that way too, is like, we're having a communication, but there's, I'm not talking to the dog. I'm just watching them. If I look in their eyes and they look away or whatever, then I go, okay, that's mm-hmm. too much. And right. I make adjustments in myself. And then what I do is oftentimes explain what I'm doing, but I don't necessarily tell them I'm feeling it. I use it as I'm seeing it. And that's mm-hmm. where I got confused when I was first learning all this. Cause I would be like, how did I already know that dog was anxious? I'd never had learned about body language before. And mm-hmm. that's when I started also putting it together that I had this empathic intuition that was happening. And so I knew that dog was scared, even though I hadn't learned and been educated at that time, this is a long time ago, of what a body length, like I didn't know yawning was a sign of stress or shaking your full body off at that time. And yeah. now science has shown just recently this study that they had a heart monitor on dogs and when their heart rate increased and they did a full body shake, their heart rate decreased. So now we have the science to prove what we've observed for all
0: these times. Yeah. Time. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. Well, I, I also like how... You know, you and I both have um, ways of not communicating with the dogs non-verbally and and sensing things, but you've integrated it into your work as a dog trainer Mm and educator, Mm -hmm. dog and people training, and I use it to have these chat sessions with clients to get information that they can then use to make decisions and then go find have the confidence to, oh, I think I will go work with a dog trainer. I'm going, they they make their decisions. Mm -hmm. So I like listeners to know that you don't have to like study intuition and animal communication and think I'm going to be an animal communicator. You can Mm -hmm. integrate it into whatever you're doing, whether it's a dog trainer or a physical therapist or whatever, whatever, whatever you do.
1: Well, as a vet tech, I didn't know this even was my skill at all, because I was very mm-hmm. close-minded Western medicine thought process. Right. But um, but I was doing it when I was a vet tech and I would go in and take a history and the vets would always have me go in first because I would assess. And I didn't even know anything about body language. I, don't, I really couldn't tell you at mm-hmm. that time. I couldn't say, it. well, their ears were back. I would just go back and I'd take my history, throwing treats, ignoring the dog. I'd go up to the vet and go this dog's going to need sedation or this dog's going to need a muzzle or this dog's dangerous. And the dog would not have done anything obviously dangerous to me in that room, but mm-hmm. I would know. And so they just trusted me. And so we would make those adjustments or I'd be like, Oh, this dog's fine. You can do whatever you want with him." And good. it was weird because I, now when I look back and those vets trusted me because I was so accurate, but I didn't even trust me. Like I didn't know Why? I could say that so confidently, but they believed in me. So I believed in it, even though I didn't know what I was believing in, if that makes sense.
0: It totally does, because I used to do evaluations for a rescue. So I think that's important as another way how people can integrate animal communication into what they're doing. If someone's like, oh, yeah, I'm like her. I I, I sometimes know when the animals come into the vet. Well, be encouraged to keep exploring that Mm -hmm. because it can be helpful. and and very Mm -hmm. useful to the animal. There's a lot of vets who do like it and find it helpful and and trainers. And, you know, you've worked in zoos, you've worked at, you know, I've been to Safari West and I've Uh been to the Marine world. I remember when it was there, you've had so much experience with your animals. What do you, I usually, when I work with the dogs, I say, what do you really want people to know? The dogs I'll ask them, but what do you really want people to know? I really think people
1: need to understand that dog, we know now dogs have emotions, dogs have feelings, and our feelings change our behavior. You know, if we're scared or if we're excited. And once you really start to understand that, and again, have that empathy and compassion, and <laughs> and, and like feelings are feelings. <laughs> like, yeah, you may be afraid. I have a friend who's petrified of snakes. She's never been bit by a snake. A lot of people are afraid of snakes. They've never been bit by. It doesn't. And like fear doesn't have to make sense. And excitement for something is because they're excited about it, you know, or anxiety and that emotions can be conflicted. That's people think don't realize. They're like what, going on a walk, but they're so excited. But then they put, well, come, and I personally have, cause I pay attention to my feelings so that I can help dogs. Cause then I go, this is probably what that feels. Like this is probably what that dog's going through. And I personally hate conflicted emotions. I have accepted that. I will state it. Conflicted emotion for me used to be, I'd say, well, you know, I like roller coasters, but I sit on a roller coaster and they smash me in, and now I got to pee my pants and I'm nervous because I'm going to die. I used to think that was the level of of conflicted emotion, and then I started paying more attention to myself. And say you're going to an interview, and you really want the job, but you're really scared you're not going to get the job. That turmoil you have inside is more than the roller coaster example. Or I'm going to meet a friend I haven't seen for a really long time. Maybe last time we saw each other, we got in an argument, but we're trying to work it out. And I'm really excited and I'm hopeful that maybe we can reconcile, but we also may never see each other again after this meeting. And that is the, like, even just talking about that made my whole like skin crawl because I hate that feeling. And I didn't know I hated that feeling until I really tuned into myself. So when I can communicate that to my client, that, They're really excited to go on their walk because they want to be with you. But the outside world is really, really scary. And they're trying to please you. So they do it, but Mm -hmm. they're not comfortable. That feeling is really yucky. And so maybe you need to like not go to those places. Or we need to work on building their confidence. Or maybe we need to find another way to play because maybe walks really aren't worth it. Maybe that stress isn't worth it. So that's something I wish people would really start to integrate more. And I try to teach my clients a lot about, you know, take that minute of like, what's going on with your dog? Who can, like they can, every dog can learn how to sit and down and all that stuff, but they might not be able to learn that if they're conflicted the whole time, you know?
0: Yeah, that dog's perspective is like a whole nother way of looking at dog training is that Mm -hmm. when a person goes into training their dog and having that relationship, are you willing as the person to consider your dog's perspective in any situation? For sure. And um, that's what I like about working with you. So we have talked previously about the whole rescue, s- the story of my dog's are rescue. This is what happened. It comes up in my work um, when people say, can you talk to dogs um, about their past lives? And I'm like, I don't know. I can just tell you what I get. And if you think it's a past life and you're going to use it, okay, I'll tell you what I get. Mm-hmm. So, but, but the, the tricky part is, is that, people, I find this in my work, get attached to these stories of my dog was traumatized, whatever it is, whether in what they say is the past life or the years before the, the dog moved in with them. How does this whole settling into the past story of the dog hurt or help in, dog, in tra- dog training in the relationship?
1: Probably one of my least favorite phrases that people will tell me when their dog is misbehaving, whether it's like emotionally, behaviorally, whatever. Yeah. He's a rescue. And I'm like, that's like saying an adopted kid, like every adopted kid's going to have issues or every, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, don't use he's a rescue as an excuse for that behavior. Because I work with a lot of dogs that come from breeders at eight weeks old, or, you know, they've had them their whole lives. And they still have those issues because they're genetic. They didn't get socialized. There's trauma. There's other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really drives me crazy with the rescue world when they hold on to anything, whether it's, well, they're just a rescue or. Right. Yeah, and there's some truth. I have a lot, a couple of client dogs that are Mexican street dogs. So came from Mexico during COVID and they are scared. Now those dogs that. They'll say, well, they're rescue," But I'm like, yeah, they're rescued. But your that dog's mother was probably under stress and her grandmother was under stress because they're street dogs. So that dog in utero was exposed to excessive stress hormones. So before he was even he or she was born, there was excess stress happening. Right. Then they're born and they're born on a street. You know, food is scarce. Safety is, you know, a problem. And then mm-hmm. some rescue comes and saves them. And, you know, now they're flown in an airplane, you know, or even if they're flown in utero, now their mom's extra stressed because this human thinks they're saving them, which they are saving them. But sometimes we don't really project, like we think we're saving things and the way we save them isn't necessarily the most kind way, not that intentionally, but scoop them up and throw them in an airplane. Their whole world's upside down. And so those dogs, yeah, they're rescue, but that's not the reason they're having these problems. It's, you know, it's because there's Generational, um, you know, genetic stress. There's, you know, it's utero, in utero stress, trauma, didn't get socialized because if they were in that situation, they didn't get socialized before they were six months old, um, or there was the trauma of being in the plane. So I don't like it when people throw rescue dogs under the bus and just say, well, that's why they're bad is because they're a rescue dog because, and well, bad. I say in quotes because there's no really bad dogs uh, because I have dogs that come from breeders <laughs> that have more behavior problems than some of my rescue dogs that I work with.
0: Right. And yeah. from what you've been saying, the point is that wherever you, the, the a person is with your dog today, we can fine tune it to help you make some adjustments, whether mm-hmm. on behalf of the person, the situation, the words you're using, the consistency, how you're holding the leash, all these things can change many, many situations, correct? And medication. You know, I'm a vet tech too. So I see a dog that comes in and I'm like,
1: we're going to really struggle to make success because your dog's anxiety is so bad mm-hmm. and the stress and the anxiety. And so we need to talk to a vet about Prozac, Clomicalm, you know, Trazodone, Xanax, whatever. There's so many different right. combinations. That's to chemically calm the nervous system down. So then we can get some learning. And then hopefully wean them off of it. Sometimes they have to be on some level of medication their whole life. Just like diabetics have to be on insulin for the rest of their life. Like, or if you have a kidney failure, or if you have some other kind of illness, you Mm -hmm. might have to be on a medication for the rest of your life because that's just how your body is. And our brain is just another organ. You know, it's like our heart Mm -hmm. and our lungs, but people get weird about brain medication sometimes.
0: Well, and that's the good thing about the interesting times that we're in. There are so many options and finding what the right treatment is for a dog. We have animal communication to help figure out what the dog is is. Sh- is able to share mm-hmm. that can then be translated with a trainer, a behaviorist, a vet. And even there's a lot of energy work that science is finding mm-hmm. is, you know, EFT is work is used in hospitals. They're starting to, you know, use Reiki more and more mm-hmm. and T touch and so so many things that's matching to it to the animal what yes. it needs and we get yes. past this looking at it's just a dog and to what does this dog need for the relationship that it's in and the lifestyle that it's in
1: exactly and there are so many options and you know even like essential oils and you know there's like so many things and one thing and it's being open because yeah. sometimes like i have people i had a client who um they were somebody told them they have to try reiki and the dog was so anxious and actually reiki i think made it kind of worse because it didn't like people being around and there was too much it was like yeah too much energy. And um, but then this Reiki person was saying, oh, we just need to do it more and more. And then we pulled the Reiki. So let's just stop that as a trainer. And let's try these other things. If we needed to, we could have brought it back in. We never did with this particular dog that I'm thinking of. But I'm open to all of those things, tea touch, you know, essential oils, all those things. But not everything's going to work for every dog, just like everything doesn't work for us.
0: That's right. That's right. And and so when like when I work with people and, and I talk about the words that we're using and they say, oh, you know, I just tell them to, you know, get off. I'm like, well, are you saying to get off consistently? Is everyone in the family agreeing that the couch is off? Mm-hmm. Because if you're not consistent, then your dog is like, oh, you know, what's going on? And it so, causes
1: a lot more stress when we're inconsistent. Um,
0: I had yeah. a friend
1: who has a, had a horse that I thought was a lovely horse. His energy was amazing, but she was really nervous. And um, he would pull to get grass when she would walk in. So when she was paying attention, she yanked him. Yeah, I mean, she would like, she'd stress me out. So I couldn't really be around her when she was around the horse. So then once, sometimes we would be talking and we were standing there and she was distracted. So the horse would be eating grass all day long. No, no, you know, I'm like, no one. And then she was like, And he ended up getting ulcers. She ended up having to rehome that horse because he got ulcers. And I couldn't tell her this, but I think her inconsistency, and he was a pretty laid back and she was type A. They were a mismatch in so many levels. So I think sometimes we cause the stress of our dogs when we're not paying attention and being consistent.
0: Yeah. Consistency. I I hear that a lot from the animals. Okay. So in terms of consistency with, the podcast i people always like when i talk with an animal and, mm-hmm. and you have a bird who let us know early on that he was interested in participating is he available now is he easy let's yeah, see he's kind of fluffed up let me see if, uh, oh he's um, already right. corby can he, you his hear name me is corby yeah
1: let me see if he'll come out like he's kind of flipped up like he was about to take a nap but his eyes are open so let me see okay still so willing. He okay. was very willing at the beginning.
0: Yes. Yes. And we had him wait. He, he hates waiting. I can already tell I'm tuning in and I've never met Corby. I, I did not know she had Corby when we first met and discussed having, doing a podcast. So this will be fun. Corby. Yes. Hi. Hi. Yes. And he was willing. He came out very willingly. He's Hi, like, Corby. He does get a little shy. So so I can tell. So right away, I'm getting it for whatever I, reason. You know, I don't know how all this animal communication works, but he knows that the lighting for me isn't as great because I can't see his beautiful colors. And mm-hmm. he is very proud of his beautiful colors. And people usually he's like, that's the first thing they say about me. Is that the first thing they say? A lot of times. He's a lilac crowned Amazon. If I can get him to turn around, he doesn't want to Come Corby, here. can we see? We want to try and see that, like your face. Oh, that's yeah. perfect. Hi, go. Corby. I'm Liz. I'm an animal communicator. I'm communicator. And you don't like bird brain jokes? Okay, we <laughs> won't do like bird brain jokes. You are fabulous. I love that you're leaning into the screen. Okay. So Corby, this is interesting. You know that we've talked mostly, well, Corby's like, you've only really talked about (laughs) the dogs, but that Shannon has a lot of experience with other animals and it's what makes her an interesting dog trainer because she's not just a dog trainer. Do you want to comment on that, Shannon?
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. And uh, don't laugh. He, his first thing he ever learned was laughing like me. So if I laugh, he might laugh. So Um, okay well he's proud of your work
0: with the other animals (laughs) he
1: was um he was when I worked at marine world africa usa one of the keepers that I worked with bred them and um he was one of the babies so he came to me he didn't wasn't fully feathered and I hand raised him and he is he was born in 95 yeah 95 so I don't know however many years that is now because I lose tracked um and uh so and um, one of the things I learned a lot by working in zoos is um, actually that's how I got positive training into my brain because oh, dog you. training and then was all still traditional. I remember. But I worked with different in different zoos. And one animal I worked with was a serval cat at Safari West named Bubba. Okay, And Bubba was a kitten. And they said, Shannon, we need to him to be able to socialize with the people. He came out on a leaf. And um, some of the keepers and the people who worked with him weren't always mad. like they would just get mad at him and so I was the only one who could really handle him and it was because I sat in there with him oh I was when he was a kitten, and I was the one who handled mm-hmm. him all the time and then I would bring him ice or meat and then I would put him on the leash and then I would carry him and you know and take him out and so if we had a special appearance I was the one who had to do it and I think a lot of it was because I built that relationship I didn't just you know well, you're not coming out. I'm like, okay, why don't you want to come out? Oh, you just don't want to see this group of kids. I don't really blame you. <laughs> you know, um, I had that same experience. We had baby ostriches hatched, and um, ostriches need to walk, but they were in a barn. So they right. would follow me around Safari West so that they could get their exercise every day when I was there. And then if we had a video and they were like, Shannon, you're the only one that they do this little spinny, spinny thing for. And I started learning early on in zoos that those animals don't have the same relationship. They're not in our homes. You know, they're in a cage. And and so they, but they sought relationship with people since we put them in our world. If they were out in the wild, if, you know, if if he was out in the wild with a flock of other Amazons, he could care less about me because he has a family. But when we bring them and domesticate them or bring them into a zoo, they still need family to some degree. And, um, you know, our, in-home pets are our family, but at the zoo, there would be animals who I was family with, but you also could have negative experiences. And a really crazy story that I had, I worked in Sacramento Zoo and I um, went to different departments. I was kind of floating and I um, went into the lion. I would feed the lions. I would go in, you know, they would be inside at night and then we'd let them outside and we'd clean their inside. So I went in one morning. They had never done this to me before. I walk in, they all hit their cages. It was really scary. And I was all, I've never done anything bad to you. I fed you, you know, but I didn't have a strong relationship with them because I wasn't their regular keeper. And the regular keeper looks at me and he goes, I had my hair, my blonde hair in a ponytail, you know, wearing my zoo clothes. Right. And he looks at me and he goes, oh my God. And I said, what? You look just like the vet that was here yesterday that darted them.
0: Oh, my gosh. And I
1: was like, oh, my gosh. So I had to be particularly that day. Um, I mean, we always kept distance because they were not tame, um, but they were more agitated with me. So he had to get them into their outside enclosures like they weren't going to go for me when I opened the, the guillotine door. Cause they were so, they like, they wanted to kill me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they would have eaten me if there was not cages between because they had been darted by someone who looked exactly like me visually the day before. Yeah. And um, I really started to recognize how animals really do pick up so many pieces of their world that a normal human wouldn't even pay attention to that. Like That is a very powerful story for me and I share it a lot but other keepers might not have ever even put it in. And that's where I think that intuition came in, but I just didn't know back then. Mm -hmm. And um, so different animals that are, even if they're in a zoo, they need it, which is actually part of the reason I got out of zoo work is I didn't like that these tigers that were bred because we want white tigers and okay, well we get some orange tigers. So we'll just throw them in the back lot and feed them, throw them steak and They'll be fine. I didn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't show up every day at work and they were depressed. They were sad. And And they just stayed there. And that's all they did. And at that time, this was in the 90s and tigers were, you could buy on for $350. I mean, they were cheaper than cats or, or than dogs, you know, $350. And people did bring them illegally, but you know, you're supposed to get these licensing. And then what would happen is there was no place for these tigers to go. And the zoo I was at, really I liked having baby white tigers. It was one of their marketing things. And so they were and breeding green, green. And then we, so we get white tigers sometimes because it's a mutation, but the orange tigers were like, whatever. You know, like we don't, they're cute when they're small, but, and they didn't have room in the shows for them. They didn't have room in the exhibits for them. And no zoos wanted them anymore because it was getting, there were just too many. And um, that was one of the reasons we got out of zoos. And it was too much about how much money are we going to make rather than, how are we going to educate the people yeah. about these animals? I think zoos are important for educating and conservatorship and conserving animals because if you've never seen a, a, a giraffe or an elephant in person in Africa, you can't appreciate how big they are. So you go to a zoo with a little kid and you go, I don't want people taking those tests. I don't want people killing those animals. So I think zoos have an important place. I'm not, I don't like to, I like to actually protect zoos. It's just making sure we protect the animals that are in the zoos. And that has changed since I was in the yeah, zoos. And- yeah,
0: yeah, fortunately. Wow, mm-hmm. what a story. Uh, Corby, is that, is that... Hi, I know, I hear you. So she <laughs> she told us something about the animals and taking care and making sure we're not just doing the business of animals or for just mm-hmm. for entertainment. So that's a good thing for people to know, Corby. What else do you want to say? Do you want to have the last word as we finish this up? Um, looks aren't everything that we can <laughs> admire. Oh, you're, you're particular about your food. Okay. So Corby doesn't like that. I'm just not a pretty bird. Ha ha. You have a sense of humor. You are a pretty bird. Do you want to say pretty bird? Hi, you're pretty Is t- somebody talking to you. Yeah, I'm talking, talking. to He's you. never talked to anyone on zoom before. Oh, well, so you're doing great. Corby, this is so fun. So Corby, I want to ask you, so you say you're, you're more than a pretty bird. You were very pretty bird. What You like that you get your, you're really good about the feeding me and the assortment of food that I get. And I guess you, you put it in and then you put do like little toppers for birds. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. So he gets fruits and vegetables
1: every day, fresh fruits and vegetables. And that's- then I sprinkle seed on top of it. And I literally tell my pet sitters, sprinkle it like it's a crouton, you know, like it's sprinkled. It's not a bowl of seed. That's exactly. It. Yes. That's what you get. He's
0: loves that. So Corby, I'm going to share that tip for people who are doing that with their dogs. And you're right. Cats too. I do work with cats sometimes, but yes, animals like those little toppers, as long as they're Oh, you're funny. You've heard that nutrient dense, do you use that word nutrient dense? It's like, he knows like having the right nutrients for the animal.
1: Well, it's funny because I I do.
0: I'm very, because I was a
1: bird keeper. So I like have, he's got pellets and I'm very particular about which pellets I buy certain brands. Um, he's supposed to eat a healthier pellet, but he throws it on the ground. So we he's gave like, up.
0: Yes, I can feel this, like this nutrient dense kind of thing. Well, Corby, you are a smart bird, not just a pretty bird. I love that you're sharing that, what helps birds and animal, cats too. Ha ha, you the sense of humor I get. Yeah, because you're, yeah, we get it that birds and cats don't get along usually, but, but you are looking out for the cats too um, and the dogs. So on Corby's tip of the day is that toppers on your pet's food make a difference and they make a really good difference when they have the right nutrients. Uh, (laughs) What else, Corby, you're giving me the look like you want to say something else. You're smiling. What else do you want to say? Um, so I will make an offer to Corby and anyone else to know as a reminder that I am available for private sessions to find out what your pet wants you to know. And Corby, I will give that as a special thank you for appearance. That if you would like to have more time for a chat session, we can do that whenever you want. You just let Shannon know and she will trust her gut and reach out. Uh, do you want to add the final word? Can you say goodbye, Corby? Do you want to say something or do you wave? What, what would you like? How would you like to end this session? He's probably, he gets a little stage fright, but you
1: sometimes, but he says things, but not usually, you know, it's kind of when he's off on his own. He's not a soup. Um, violet crowned Amazons don't have the same vocabulary as like uh, a gray, um, African gray or some of the other Amazons, but he, um, well, laughs. Messaged, he says hi, hi
0: Corb. Will you say hi, Corb? Hi, Corb. Hi, Corb. Hi, Corby. Hello, Corby. I know, it's the computer talking to you.
1: He's like, mom usually just types on that thing. So I don't really understand. (laughs) I hear it.
0: I hear it. Bye, Corby. Bye, Corby. Yeah. Bye, Corby. Okay, so we're going to end on that. um, I will have everything of where people can find you if they want to give this whole online dog training thing a chance. I know it does work. I've worked with other people. I have clients who have worked with online dog trainers and they like it because the dog has to be still focused like on the person while the online dog trainer can point out what you need to adjust. Correct.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I have videos, so you don't, you can do it at your time, but there's always the option of doing, um, a online things. So you could be in, uh, Australia and we could still do zoom and I can see what your dog's doing. You know, and we can still coordinate all of that. So, um, Some of my programs include a virtual coaching and some of them you just pay for it additional.
0: Okay, so perfect. (laughs) So I'll have that information. I think most of all we both want people to know it's okay. None of us are perfect. We have, I've been bitten by dogs. You know, my hand got in the way I knew better. It's like, we all have opportunities and to improve or to learn new tricks and resources are available. So don't be embarrassed or procrastinate because there is help and it can make a big difference And and you can have a very enriched life.
1: For sure, for sure. Don't be
0: embarrassed, you know. And if an a trainer
1: shames you and makes you feel embarrassed then you need to move to another trainer.
0: Yeah yeah mm-hmm. and same with an animal communicator I, i've mm-hmm. told people listen if you, you've had a bad experience and you're just gun shy i'll give you your money back if if i can't help you so yeah, yeah get the help you need for your pets so for sure Shannon, thank you so much for thank your time you. Courtney, we're gonna <laughs> say goodbye yeah, yeah you get you get her to all to yourself but- i know
1: he likes it when i work because my desk is right next to where his house so he um gets all excited when it's time to do paperwork. So this was very exciting.
0: It was exciting. (laughs) And I hope, Corby, that you'll reach out so we can chat again. And it's been fun. It's been fun. We have not had a bird on Talking with the Dogs bonus sessions. We've had cats, but you are the first bird, Corby. Oh, look at you. He's like, oh, now I can't talk about it anymore. Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you
1: very much for having me.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Ready to find out what your dog wants you to know? Visit TalkingWithTheDogs.com, book an appointment with me, and we'll find out.